Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Randy Bellasomo. She's a well-known Chicago reporter that was changed by a personal experience. That personal experience inspired her to create a website in hopes to empower individuals to prepare for their own end of life. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I am thrilled to have you on this podcast. The last few months, I've been researching you since we met in San Francisco at the Inwell conference where you spoke. And I have to tell you, I'm blown away by your story. First of all, you're probably one of the top reporters in the Chicago area. And I didn't know that. I just thought you had a personal experience and you wanted to change how people faced end of life. But let's talk a little bit about you're a reporter. I am. And that was my first love and first career, and I've remained with, I've been very fortunate to have been able to remain with WGN television throughout Carl's illness, death, and my rebirth, so to speak, as an end-of-life educator, being a care planning advocate, and um, that's it. Journalism brought us together, so that was meant to be, and uh, has had a huge role, uh, particularly the setting in Chicago, um, on the local news level in my life. Um, I was, I moved to Chicago in 2005 to attend Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. And again, through very fortunate um, timing and relationships, I was able to remain here and not move to a smaller city. And I started on Chicago TV, which is rare. Um, but as I said, I think it was meant to be um, when I was right out of graduate school. And that's um, where I met Carlos. And at the time, I think it, you maybe get um, optimism and uh, for lack of, I don't know if the word is um, uh, belief in yourself that things are possible when you start in a prime job when you're 24 or 3, um, that you are thinking, well, I've got my career ahead of me. What's next? Maybe maybe to go to the national level and be a national correspondent. And that was probably what I thought was in my future. However, um, when I met Carlos, Carlos lived, breathed, and just oozed um, Chicago history and stories. He had, people say, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of the Chicago political landscape and, and history. And he was always very supportive, if you want to go, um, pursue national news on a broader scale, that's great, I'm with you, but don't don't try to think about getting me to move to, to New York or, or L.A. because he was a Chicago neighborhood guy. And so that was, a, that was an agreement early on. So Carlos is your late husband, and he what, what's so exciting about this is that he did breathe every day, loved Chicago, loved being in the limelight when it comes to the political atmosphere. But he also was there right when a senator uh, made a pitch uh, and ran for president, won um, Barack Obama, and, and covered him pretty 
pretty extensively, knew him as the Illinois senator, but also um, kept a relationship with him. They were they were buddies, and, and that's the thing, talking to Carlos, Barack Obama, everybody knows, was a very unlikely story, Illinois level, from the fact that he was a state senator, and out of no disrespect to the president, what uh, political reporters would call a backbencher. Um, he wasn't setting the world on fire in Springfield, Illinois. He was a guy from the South Side, nice guy. Um, I don't think Carlos would mind. He did not. He quit before we got married. Um, Carlos and uh, Barack Obama shared a love for um, uh, cigarettes, and Barack <laughs> Obama was Barack Obama was always a little uh, out of cigarettes and sometimes out of uh, the money for cigarettes. And so he used to bump his Marlboros um, from Carlos. And so they shared that. I have photos in my house of them smoking together. That is awesome. It's funny, right? And so when he he was running for president, um, no one was more surprised at his ascendancy, but still excited because of the story of it all. Carlos played it straight. Most political reporters... Um, don't don't buy in if they're doing their job well to any political ideology. <laughs> it's not worth much um, when it gets down to uh, doing governance. Um, but he was very excited to to follow that story. Uh, somebody that he knew when he um, wasn't um, he wasn't anything super special, but he was always a really nice guy. And and it was very moving to Carlos's family to me um, the day after his death that. Um, uh, the president and Mrs. Obama were among the first to send their regards, um, and that meant a lot. Oh man, that just—I just got chills because you know what I love—that some people never forget where they come from, right? And and that's that just proves the fact that the Obamas—they don't forget where they come from. They don't. I mean, they are Chicago. They know that that early coverage was vital because there was always something special about Barack Obama, even if he wasn't, you know, pioneering a transformative bill with the state house, but there was something special that was identified on the ground here um, at a local level early. And that um, obviously uh, helped tremendously when people didn't know his name. Well, and I don't, I've never met your husband, but knowing and seeing him and seeing how um, some past video doing some research, I bet he was so thrilled to be a part of this journey with the Obama family. Mm-hmm. I, I know that was just probably one of the biggest thrills of his life. Oh, it was. And election night, election night in Grant Park was the photos from that evening. Everybody was just basking in the glow of the history of it all to see mm-hmm. the entire city come out to Grant Park and see the history being made. A lot of people go into journalism, I think. I was one of them for the chance to witness history oh, and put sure. it in context and to have a front row seat. I mean, there's there's always a thrill in that. I wasn't there because obviously um, our staff had to be at every race uh, um, around the state and covering those. So I didn't get to see it uh, firsthand. I was working in my own uh, area uh, of the election, but Carlos uh, got to experience that um, when he was well and healthy and happy. And it was, it was a night that he remembered for, for until the day he died. Oh, I'm sure. So let's talk about Carlos, your husband. Um, how did you guys meet? Yeah. So we met through work, but we, uh, it took a while because um, he was 
he had a different office than I did because he um, uh, was a political reporter and he wasn't based in the newsroom, um, as many political reporters aren't. Um, and so I first saw him maybe my first week of work on air. And um, one of our monitors, and I asked some of the producers, too, is that? And they said, oh, that's a political reporter, Carlos. He's so funny. But you don't see him very often because he's always a, 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 the man about town, and he has a great job. He doesn't have to come into the newsroom, and he just calls in from home and tells us what he's doing today <laughs> instead of being assigned a story. And I said, i got to get to know that guy because he obviously has something good going on. Um, and I think um, it wasn't until maybe a, two or three months later, I was covering a story at Wrigley Field um, on a Saturday morning, and it was in his neighborhood. Um, he lived nearby, and he saw um, our live uh, truck, CLTV setup, um, and he knew I was working, and he pulled over. I don't think... Um, we never addressed this. I think he had another girl in the car. Uh, and so I didn't really think anything romantic was going to happen about, I mean, whoever she was. And so he introduced himself. It was very nice. Uh, he welcomed me to CLTV and to Chicago. I've been living there a year for graduate school. I was still new. Said he lived in the neighborhood. Later that afternoon, I was walking into uh, old Walgreens, um, running my errands after work. And I get a call on um, my phone, and he said, hey, this is Carlos. Let's meet for a drink uh, tomorrow. And I was young, and I and went up for anything and didn't ask any questions. And I said, okay. You know, <laughs> and that's, the, that's the key. Be open to anything. I probably wouldn't say okay so quickly today. Um, and so we met. And then after I got off the phone, I said to myself, how did he get my number? Um, because I certainly didn't give it, but we're reporters and we find out what we want to know. And so he took that step, and I think um, I think the the other girl went away um, <laughs> in short order. I think I think it took a few weeks. I think it took longer than a few weeks. But I, he knew what he wanted, and apparently that was me. That's awesome. That is so <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's the story. Oh man, and so. You guys fell in love, and you guys, y'all were covering Chicago together politically, you know, through Carlos, and yeah. you were covering the local news, and it seemed like the the greatest love story in Chicago media history. It was great, and people knew that, and everybody, most everybody was so supportive because they knew that we were, even though I was not from Chicago, uh, we had um, similar personalities. Um, it, we weren't opposites of the thing. They say opposites attract. We were both just very enthusiastic for life, wanted to experience everything and do it together. And I will say from my standpoint, it was such a gift to be a new person in a city and a job and absorb all of the knowledge and know-how that he had developed. He was um, seven and a half years older than me and a whole lifetime in Chicago to be able to absorb um, a fraction of what he knows certainly um, was so helpful in making me comfortable in in my position, and so it was it was it was so wonderful. So you got married, mm -hmm. and and how long were you guys married before incident? He got diagnosed about a year and a half after we got married. I think you have got to be kidding. 
No, that's it happened. So we dated about I don't know nine months, and we're engaged, and all of it's wonderful. And then about a year and a half later, he started um, having symptoms of colon cancer, and your listeners probably know what those are: blood in the bathroom, and um, and he told me, and I said you should see a doctor. And went to his, an internist, and this is this is a story about being an advocate in your own healthcare. Went to an internist who said he was, it was probably um, something at like not very serious. He's probably tired. He needs to get more rest. I, I mean, the answers did not make sense. And obviously, he was tired. I think that was in the middle of a big election cycle, or maybe not election cycle. It was the county trying to pass a budget, I think, and let us know if it keeps happening. And then a month later, it started again, and we were actually on a road trip, a weekend trip, um, that we took his mother on, um, which was fun. Um, and he told me, and that he didn't want to tell anybody, and I felt like I was holding this knowledge, and I talked to his mother um, without him knowing, said, we have got to get him to a specialist pronto as soon as we did that and so we did and we went to a gastroenterologist who and this is the thing I mean I know this happens every day when it happens to you it's heartbreaking when you hear the doctor outside of your room examination room saying god 35 six year old guy bleeding I, I can't believe it I guess it's colon cancer and so we hear it, overhearing the doctor speaking to the nurses. And I said, do not, do not jump to any conclusions. And we didn't because it, it takes more tests to find that out. And so that led to um, colonoscopy. Now, Carlos was way too young to have been having a regular colonoscopy at that time. Um, was not on our radar. Uh, I've known now after the fact, and I don't know if this, had anything to do with it, but I do know he had a grandfather who died uh, well before he was Carlos was born, who was in his fifties. Um, half of his family is Puerto Rican, the other half, his father's side, is Colombian, and he died in Colombia in his fifties of what they said were stomach issues, um, bleeding ulcer or something is the story I heard, and I have to think that he probably had colon cancer too. Um, maybe, um, because some of these things are genetic and I know he has younger siblings who are now tested regularly at a young age. Um, so had a colonoscopy and that's, um, what confirmed, um, that there was a tumor. So you, you were with your family in Tennessee. You're from Tennessee. You were, you were visiting your mom and dad yes. um, over Christmas. And so you got the phone call that confirmed the suspicion. Right. This was around Christmas, and we, he had a colonoscopy um, the, the day before we were scheduled to leave um, to go to my parents' home in Memphis, and uh, they'll call you within a few days. We weren't really expecting anything on um, on Christmas anyway, so we went on with the trip, and I remember he's, he was very um, gentlemanly, chivalrous kind of guy. He was tired. He was a little pale, and he's like, carrying all my luggage, going slow, carrying him up the stairs. And it was maybe a day 
after Christmas when the doctor said, um, we need you to get back here. We were in the hospital in Northwestern in Chicago. Uh, we found cancer. And I remember when that happened, just wanting to, it sounds so trite, rewind five minutes because we were having a great day. I think my grandparents were coming over that night. And this is the day after. I, I don't know what was happening. Something was happening. And just wanting to go on with the day as normal and not think about doing this right now. Um, but that was devastating. Obviously, he needed to get back. He got on one of the first planes back, I mean, but like ASAP ticket. And I was that night, and I was going to fly, and he could get on the next morning. Um, his the brother met him at the airport in Chicago, went to the hospital, and that's where we found out. he. By the time he called me, he was getting blood transfusions and said his hemoglobin is something like five. Uh, which is really low. And of course, the reason why he was so tired when he's carrying luggage and lethargic. And we had no idea, but we were just trying to press on as normal because none of us wanted to think that the worst was happening, but it was. And your your exposure to healthcare prior to that moment was minimal. You were young. You were in love. Very minimal. And I also knew, in preparing for the podcast, I was thinking about my exposure to the healthcare system. And it was very minimal. My, like my, my living grandparents at the time of my birth were all still living, uh, my parents. And so we hadn't had any serious health crisis. I had had some procedure, minor, uh, about a year prior. And I went into the hot, the, to, you know, the pre-op to get it done. And a nurse came in. They had to test everything before that you can go in for the procedure. And the nurse came in and said, I can't believe I'm saying that. They can't do the procedure because, guess what, you're expecting a baby. I knew I wasn't expecting a baby. Carlos fell out of the chair, right? He was, like, <laughs> shocked. That was not what was we were trying to do, and what we were thinking that was happening at that day. And then I said, I really don't think so. Well, they had mixed up my specimen that I had sampled that I had given prior to the procedure, and they gave me the wrong, they mixed up my and that's how the confusion happened. Took it again and everything was fine. <laughs> and so I knew in the back of my hand, this is still fresh in my brain, that surely mistakes happen. Maybe this is wrong. Maybe they don't know what they're talking about. It happened. It made, they made such a stupid error. Maybe they got the wrong guy. And you're trying to rationalize everything you can to take yourselves out of this nightmare. So my exposure was very minimal, but I also know that healthcare systems can make errors and we are hoping that we were one. Oh my gosh. So you immediately went like, well, let's just check it out because, you know, right. mistakes happen. Oh my right. gosh. And my mother who was there, you know, when the phone call came, I mean, her first reassurance is, please don't jump to conclusions. You don't know what this means. There's all sorts of types and stages of cancer. This isn't, this isn't, a, this is serious, but let's not go to the worst case scenario. And I know that that happens to so many patients and families. You keep thinking, surely this isn't the worst thing that can happen. And um, we were we were those people. Unbelievable. 36 years old. Now, when did you realize that, that Carlos was not going to live long with this diagnosis? When did that sit in? I, I say, and I think it's like this for so many people, that there are um, phases of realization because I don't think, I think our body, our mind, our spirit 
shuts us down from absorbing that all at once. And so the first time he went to the hospital, um, they did more tests, and it were residents um, that did not, uh, they, they delivered the first test results when we got there right after Christmas. And the residents came in, and they're about my age at the time. I don't know how old I was, 26-something, at five, seven. And they're about my age, and they're delivering news, and they're crying. And, of course, um, I find myself trying to comfort the residents because I know that they're so uncomfortable with this, and they're looking at somebody that's about their age. And, and you know from their expression and their emotional demeanor that the news isn't good. They also, and speaking of mistakes, it doesn't matter now, but they also had said that the cancer had spread um, to several more places than it had actually spread. And that was way too much to absorb. And I said, surely that's not true. It turns out it wasn't true. Uh, it didn't matter. It was already spread. But it wasn't everywhere that they said it was everywhere. And so that was terrible. Um, after Carlos and I broke down, I I had to remove myself from the situation, go down the hall, and just I I called my mother and told her to get on the plane and and just became sick to my stomach. Um, but then that that wasn't as bad the case because then the, our actual physician came in, one that I work with now, who uh, gave hope to a certain extent. It said no, 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 the scan that the wrong interpretation of the scan. We have this treatment available. We can get it in check and you could become a candidate for this major surgery. Um, it's called HIPEC, um, that they put really hot chemo into your abdomen. And so, and, and that's, that's a chance that this, we could eradicate this. So that was an up and down or down and up within the course of about an hour. Holy cow. So that, there's, there are valleys and there's peaks. And I know this happens in so many healthcare situations. You hear one news and then you hear something else and then you hear something else. So on the first day in the hospital at the time of diagnosis, I had no hope and hope. So then and during the course of the illness over 13 months, there are more moments like that. And I think that that's true. That illness isn't, illness isn't linear. That's what I've realized. You know, there's uh, there's ups and downs every day. So, I mean, you you and Carlos are journalists. Y'all talk about everything, mm-hmm. but for some reason, mm-hmm. this 13 months through this very serious diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. What did you guys talk about? Did you talk about him dying? Mm-hmm. Did you? Did no. You- so we talked about the next thing. This other thing, and I'm more guilty of this than anybody is I wanted to maintain as much normalcy in our lives as possible. And to maintain normalcy was not was was to minimize uh, the windows and his um, fatalistic planning. It was too much for me to bear. Um, let's have a good day. He worked. That's the other thing. He worked for n- nine of the 13 months that he was sick. He went back to work after he had surgery. And he wanted to because that was his life and that was his that was what he wanted to do. He had a chemo pump under his suit and he did great work. Um and I did I tried to too. Um so when you're going through chemo you have a few bad days, but the the rest of the days in the in the cycle you, you can try to do things. Cancer is a is starting to be managed in many situations as a chronic illness. And when the chemo is going along for six, seven months 
and you're doing well and that you're responding to it and things are not changing, you can lull yourself into the belief that this can go on forever. And so that was what we did. Um, it was going so well that he did become a candidate for the surgery called HITECH. And it wasn't being done in Chicago at the time. So nine months into this, we went to Milwaukee, which was a big decision. And I tell people, I tell people that we didn't even feel like we made a decision. It was, it was just inevitable. What else are we going to do? Not try to eradicate the cancer? If, if that option came up again, knowing what I know now, uh, I would certainly <laughs> think a lot harder about it. Maybe not do it. I don't know. And so we went to Milwaukee, and that, that's a 12-hour ordeal, um, and it's very hard. And we were in Milwaukee recovering from that surgery for about 10 days. You just move um, before you could come back to Chicago. And um, that surgery was so hard on him, he didn't go back to work after that because he just couldn't. And then, you know, he couldn't take the chemo because he's too sick from the surgery. And then three months after that, the cancer had just recurred. And as is the case in so many young people with cancer, when you get cancer at a young age, it just seems to be so much more invasive and aggressive. And it's breaking through all your immune system. And so that's when, when the cancer had recurred and there was really, um, you go to another line of chemotherapy, you knew that you're at the end of the line. Um, and so that was probably when it it hit me that this was not getting any better. What was that like for you? I mean, as a young wife, totally in love. I mean, this was a love story that Chicago was living with you. Yeah. And everybody knew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew. And that's the thing. The public nature of the illness, I think, required everybody to. I think this happens to many families. You tell people what they want to hear. They want to hear that he's doing okay. You, They want to hear and you want to hear that you have a plan. You want to hear that something's next. Um, and you want to you want to allow people, you know, come in, see him, be social, try to be normal. And it's very hard. And I, and I talk about this with caregivers a lot because you don't know the timeline. And, I, and nobody knows the timeline. I mean, we're not the divine. Um, but I'm going to work every day, um, because I don't know if things are going to get worse later. Right. And so I have to you know, save your days, whatever. And he's already on long-term disability. So what do you do? You just try to keep going. And I thought in my own mind, watching, you know, television, movies, the way we were, that it was going to be just a long decline and we'll know when it's getting close. But right now, he's just not well. Um, but actually, the nature of his death was uh, much more sudden due to a pulmonary embolism. And so things can change quickly when you're that um, when you're that ill. And that's ultimately what happened. And so even though you were prepared that, hey, my husband is facing death, the sudden impact. I thought I had months. And then the disease took a, a, a 180 degree turn. And you lost him very quickly in your in your mind, right? In, right in my mind, exactly because I I tell people I was going to work the morning that he had a pulmonary embolism, and he wanted to move from the sofa to the bed or vice versa, 
and and my mother was staying with us at the time. And, you know, we were talking about what we were going to do later that afternoon, run a movie, whatever we were going to do, um, to have some quality to that day. And that's when he fell and the ambulance came because he had suffered that. And that, that was the last conversation we were able to have before he was on a life support was about what we were going to do that afternoon. And so that's why we tell everybody that our organization works with in planning situations, um, especially when we're talking to people who are living with a diagnosis. It's never too early to have these conversations because people aren't aware of the sudden traumatic things that happen. And I know some, a lot of doctors don't talk about all the scenarios. There's a million scenarios, traumatic scenarios that can happen when somebody's so compromised. And so I understand it's hard to bring up all the things um, that might occur, but I think the important takeaway is is that things can happen very quickly, and then you're left um, very exposed to um, uncertainty. And in shock, knowing that it's coming down the road, but it happened that quickly, You, I'm sure you were completely in shock, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was I was in shock for probably days. Um, and that's the thing. People are like, people have talked to me and they said, were you really that surprised? I mean, he was sick. And I said, yes, I was surprised. I didn't think he was going to die that day. Um, I didn't think he was going to die that month um, just because of, he wasn't doing well, but he wasn't doing terribly. Um, and you see these depictions of death and and, and television or popular culture and, you know, the families around the bed and everybody has their last conversation and says goodbye. Well, ultimately, I didn't want to give into all that thinking, but in the back of my mind, if I allowed myself to think about it, that's certainly what I envisioned. I, I, I'm not sure what to say because I, I feel, you know, that's the thing is, is that there's so many, you're right, so many avenues, um, but I hate that you lost him that like that um because i i wish you had that moment where everyone was gathered but that's that's not how it always ends and i think that's your message it's not that is the message and there's so many and people say well what would have been different what would have been different or a few things his his um his mother was in felt like things were going well enough okay enough for her to go to new york and visit her other son and her grandchild who was newborn um, because we thought we had some time, a new addition to the family. That's great. She should have thought. His father is a pilot, and he was flying literally from New York, I think, to L.A. Um, I was going to work that day. Polos had a chemo appointment scheduled the day after he died. He died on a Sunday. Um, he had a chemo appointment that Monday. He told me Saturday, the day before he died, that he wasn't feeling up to it that he just dreaded getting out. It was January. I don't want to go. I said, Carlos, you got to go. Until the doctor says you don't have to go, you got to go. I know it's not fun. We'll go in the morning and come back. And I know now that I was so wrong. If we had one more day together, we shouldn't have been spending several hours in the chemo infusion room. So what would have been different? That's what our main message is. It's how we spend our time. We didn't have complicated lives and financial, legal issues to, to rectify, like many people do, and that's important. But the main loss there was how we spend our time. So how do you want to spend it? We shouldn't have, I, we shouldn't have spent the last day of his life or a week of his life 
as sitting in a hospital getting chemo that wasn't going to help them. So that was, that's our message. So you did, you know, you did create something, um, being in, in the world of journalism, you could not rest unless you felt that your experience could possibly help other people. And you created this organization called Life Matters Media. So talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to want to create this educational website that really in, in, inspires people to really think about death far before a healthcare crisis or a diagnosis even. So everybody has their own path of meaning making and we'll never know why certain things happen. But I had to feel like this experience, first of all, I felt like the most important thing I had to do with my life, I, which is taking care of him um, and giving him the best life possible with whatever happiness he had. Um, was already behind me at the age of 29. And that's, um, that's hard. After you grieve the loss of your husband, then you're looking at yourself. Um, you said, well, the mo- what I was probably put on this earth to do is already over and I'm healthy. What do I do? And trying to make sense of all that, it's like, I think that if we were two communicators who talked about everything and were pretty health literate and we're getting care at one of the top hospitals in the country in a major city and we still had challenges navigating there. What is it like for everybody else? It must probably be similar. And so I heard a lot of these stories and I hear a lot of stories about diagnoses and you know, fighting these battle and you know, navigating illness, but we often don't hear about the final stages of illness. So we hear a lot about grief and I think that's important, but we don't hear about the end very well. And so I was thinking about what to do, and I had talked to his physician after the fact about um, what what could have been different, what I couldn't have heard anyway if she had said it, how we could have done this differently. Um, and we started talking about the barriers patients have to addressing this. A lot of it has to do with you don't want to disappoint your family. Uh, you don't want to give up your own hope for uh, getting better. Uh, caregivers don't want to put fear into the patient or give up their own hope. And doctors have so many barriers that we could talk about. And so all of these barriers are keeping us from talking about what happens the most. My experience in the media, and I want to tell, give you uh, a big congratulations, said, well, what if we, I was doing work at Chicago Public Radio also at the time, what if we just did like a radio show <laughs> about end of life, navigating the end of life, you know? And it could be different stories and experts, and it would be great. Well, I tell you, this is why I congratulate you. This is maybe 2010 or 11, and nobody wants to hear about that. Right. That's a nice idea, but nobody's going to listen to that because we don't want to hear it. And I, I thought to myself, I thought that they were wrong, um, but I said, well, we just have to do it ourselves. And so when we started this website to just have information, news, resources, stories, because the end of life is so often hidden. You know, if you go to the colon cancer uh, alliance website or the breast cancer survivor website, you see a lot about treatment and care and support. And maybe end of life issues may have a few lines hidden at the bottom of the page because it doesn't help organizations that are associated with diseases to raise money, support, and advocacy talking about end of life. It, it, it 
right? So, well, how can we put that out in the forefront? So we did. And so we first set up a website and it got favorable attention. And we said, well, how are we going to maintain this? So we have to, we're just like trying to do that. But it wasn't, it might have been seven days later that we, that we were not prepared for, um, that we started getting calls for educational community programming. It's like, nobody's doing this. You've shed a light on it. Can you come out and do some programming to our people? And so we had to get our act together quickly um, and develop the programming. What are we going to do in the community? And so that's what um, makes up the vast majority of our work now is uh, community advocacy um, and making a difference in the lives of real folks. But you, it's not just Chicago anymore. Mm-mm. This is Life Matters Media is, you know, in on the internet, and you're you're making impacts. And this organization, which is nonprofit, mm-hmm. is making impacts everywhere. That's that's very nice of you to say. It's hard because while we are here, and most of our programs are here, we do travel and do different meetings and conferences and things like that. But it's hard to measure that impact because it's one of the best stories I've heard had really nothing to do with anything we did directly, but somebody told me, stranger told me, I saw um, you have this website and I know that you do programs. I've never been to one of your programs. I've never even been to your website, but I got my parents together to talk to them about their end-life care plans and how they want to live just because I knew that you existed. And I said, that's that's an important thing to remember because you don't know the impact of what you're doing um, several levels out. And so that's why everybody who works in end-of-life care and education don't undervalue what you do because just by the fact that you're doing it means something to other people. Looking on the outside and what you're doing, it's somehow, I would have never met Carlos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that we never met physically, but to see his story, to hear his story, his love for life in the place he lived, I mean, it's almost like his legacy is continuing. It is. And, and that means a lot. That means a lot. People come, and I think that that has been, it's meant a lot to everybody because we go out to programs and we're talking to seniors and places that I've never been, maybe, and haven't you know, met these people before. And the first thing they tell me is how much they love, they love my husband and they watched him every day. And girl, don't you know, I've been praying for you since he got sick because I know how hard that must have been. And so to have the the support that can't be measured from people that we never knew um, has meant a lot. I could only imagine. It was like the whole Chicago area and even the president of the United States mm. felt his loss. And mm-hmm. and that's where, you know, we forget in in the crazy world that we live in that one person can make such a huge impact. And that's what I think you're doing now with Thank Life you. Matters Media. And, and what I love is that people see you on the television, even nationally, and and yet this is what you're really passionate about and that you as a top reporter in one of the top cities in the nation are now in churches and community centers saying, this is what happened to me. And I want to change this for you if that's possible. And I think that is amazing. Thank you. That's what I say. 
I, I, you know, I'm now part-time at WGN because I'm more than full-time with Life Matters. But I say, you know, reporting, that's something I do for a living. But helping other people start the most important conversation they can have is what I really live to do. And I think when people find, um, I think when people find purpose and in, in what they're supposed to do, I think impact really follows. I think if we follow what we, we think is our purpose, uh, everybody here has a purpose. And if we all, if we all live that out, uh, I think we can really help each other and all these terrible things that happen to us because those are inevitable. Those are inevitable. But how we navigate them and how we respond to them is a lot up to us. So tell me, let's, let's tell the listeners how they can find you. So they can find me on uh, our website, lifemattersmedia.org, um, on Twitter, at Life and Media. And I'm very accessible uh, to my parents' chagrin. They worry about <laughs> everybody knows how to find me if they want me. Um, so, yeah, I'm very accessible in Chicago. We have programming across the area. Um, we're doing a, what we hope is going to be a transformational pioneering community conversation program in one of the more underserved um, neighborhoods in Chicago with the support of the Retirement Research Foundation that we just love um, to do uh, because seniors are living alone and don't have the best access to health care and how to make them advocates for themselves and ask the questions and plan what they need to plan. Um, that means a lot to me. And right now we're preparing for um, what we hope will be the biggest National Healthcare Decisions Day event ever, which is coming up with this year's before National Healthcare Decisions Day on the 16th of April. Um, we will be around Chicago um, doing something I, I hope is exciting. It is exciting. And and this is the thing, you are a nonprofit. So if there's anybody out there that has a little bit of extra change, Randy is doing some passionate work in Chicago, not only in Chicago, but also on a national basis. I met you in San Francisco. Um, support this organization. Thank you. And it'll go directly into the program. It will go to people and families in advanced care planning, one-on-one in educational programs and underserved populations that want to die well and in comfort and peace. We all want, it might look different, but we all want whatever our version is, quality of life at the end of life. And we know that the best way to get that is to think about what that looks like to you, talk about it with people close to you and your providers, and document. And we give people the opportunity to do that. And if people do support Life Matters Media, they should know uh, we do this, um, that it does go to programs. I, I, I say this not as I'm no martyr. I, I'm fine. I mean, we don't. Our, our Mary and I don't take a salary. This is this is a from the heart. We do employ people in the communities and to to help make this happen. But your the support does go directly into people helping people plan. I love it, and I, I tell you, you're one of my heroes. You really are. Oh, it, you well, you, I like you a lot too. <laughs> the first moment I met you, you know, when you click with people, I said I. I click with you. Well, I tell you, I I want to even expand our relationship and how I can help you get that word out and support Life Matters Media because what you're doing is you're changing how people face end of life, not just there in Chicago, but nationally. And I just think you, you are. You're one of my heroes. And I love that this is part of Carlos's legacy, how he's going to change and his story 
um, losing someone that young. I, if there's anything that I can do for you and your organization, all you have to do is ask. And I will. Thank you. You do. Seriously. Um, I, I support you so much and I want this to be a long, long road. And I want every person to just go to the website and just look at it because I'm telling you, if you wait until you're sick, you're almost too late. And this is where you need to prepare today when you're healthy and have these conversations when they are not emotional. Um, it's really important. Um, but I thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for having me on. This means a lot. It means a lot to me as well. And um, again, go see lifemattersmedia.org. Visit and learn more about how possibly you can get Randy to come to your community and maybe even start getting Life Media Matters even on a grassroots effort in your community. Um, thanks again for your time. Yeah, we can love to help people do the same thing. Absolutely. We love to help people replicate community planning. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.